there's certain substances that we almost all use and quite regularly as well that we sort of think of as in a different category to what we think of as drugs by which we mean illicit drugs drugs that have been controlled in some way or are thought of as illegal but actually in terms of sort of effects or pharmacology that line doesn't really exist I'll roll us some cigarettes for yeah. us to smoke while we're talking. Right. If Good. you like. Yes. Do you consent to that, Dad? I do. And, and it's interesting to me as well, people like to call cannabis a, a gateway drug. There's some truth within that in that once you take one drug that's illegal, you're more inclined to think the other drugs are unnecessarily illegal as well. I certainly have had that trajectory to a certain extent. But I would say that the gateway drug for me, or drugs for me, were nicotine and alcohol. For some cultures, there are certain substances that you don't think of as a drug. Like for us, it's alcohol. But for some other cultures, it might be cannabis. That cannabis is just something that's culturally built into that way of life. And so if a doctor asks you whether you're using drugs, you might say no, because you wouldn't think of it as a drug. Yeah, there's that whole story of you being drunk, listening to Leonard Cohen and lying on the floor and saying something obnoxious to Sue, the family friend Sue. Uh, to which you responded by uh, grinding pepper in your eyes. That's right. So you always kind of bring this up with her, like, do you remember when you put pepper in my eyes? And I always think, well, it sounds like you were probably being annoying enough to deserve pepper in your eyes, so uh, I don't know if you should be bringing that up. So, yeah, but you're lucky generally. You don't get, like, angry drunk. No, I didn't get... No, it didn't make me sort of... um... Hostile. No, no. It can make you say things that are provocative, but it doesn't. It doesn't uh, make you ag- ag- violent. Nothing made me violent. No, you've not been a particularly violent man in your life, really, in no. any any way, which is a good thing, really. Sunless Sea. Memories of my dad. Episode 11. Drink Sangrea in the Park. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. They have a survey at podcastviews.com, which I'd really appreciate you filling in. Fill it in for Getting Better Acquainted, the podcast that Down to a Sunless Sea grew out of and is produced by. Additional to the general content note that this series has and to the obvious topics that the introduction will have implied, this episode will touch on PTSD, dependency, addiction and rape. But all of these topics are touched on very lightly and briefly. So I'm here with Susie Gage in her home in Liverpool and I'm here to talk about drugs really which is a fun thing to be talking about certainly more fun than some of the topics that I'm talking about on this show. So hello Susie. Hello. 
Can you give us a bit of an overview of who you are and why I'm talking to you about drugs today? Sure. So yes, as you said, I'm Susie Gage. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool. So I work doing psychology and epidemiological research, looking at trying to understand better the links between recreational drug use and mental health. That's my kind of day job research area of interest. But alongside that as well, I'm a science writer and podcaster and now quite recently an author. And I make a podcast and I've just written a book called Say Why to Drugs, which is all about the science of what we know, but also what we don't know about various different recreational drugs. The stance of both the book and the podcast is to just give facts without biases to a certain extent. I mean, it's very hard to give facts without biases because we're human beings. But the idea is that there'll be no sort of spin, but also no judgment as well of people, right? Yeah, that was a really key thing when I started making. So the podcast came first about three years ago, I think, maybe even a bit longer now I started making it. And when I first started thinking about it, I had a bit of paper and I'd just written no hyperbole, no spin, no judgment judgment at the top of the page. That was kind of my touchstone for what I wanted to achieve with the podcast. But as you say, it's hard because you don't know like as a human, you kind of necessarily add your own feelings onto it. But I try and stick to the evidence and make it clear when I'm deviating from evidence and talking about my opinion on something. And it's usually like it's my informed opinion because I have read up around these topics a lot and done a lot of research into it myself. As somebody who's mostly focused in your research work, at least on recreational drugs and mental health, and you're also a podcaster, we have a lot in common because I am a recreational drug user. I have mental health problems and I'm a podcaster. And your PhD that you did was about the relationship of cannabis, tobacco and mental health stuff, right? I did that in Bristol. And in Bristol, there's a really large, uh, what's called a birth cohort. So it's a group of, in fact... They weren't even born when it started. It was pregnant women, about 14,000 pregnant women in Bristol and the surrounding area were invited to take part in this study and them and their children were followed up ever since. The children are now in their early 20s. So there's data collected sort of most years on the children, on their parents. Questionnaires were posted out. They were invited in for clinics. They had sort of body scans, blood samples, hair samples, you name it. There's a warehouse full of placentas somewhere in Somerset, apparently, placentas in formaldehyde. So there's this incredibly rich data set that I was able to use while I was doing my PhD. The thing I wanted to do was try and look at, well, what comes first? We see an association between poorer mental health and use of lots of recreational substances, including alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, and others as well. But understanding what that means is really tricky because it could be that using a recreational drug increases your risk of poor mental health. But equally, it could be that people with poor mental health are more likely to use a recreational drug for some reason, something perhaps to do with their poor mental health. Maybe it alleviates some of the symptoms of the mental health problem itself. Maybe it alleviates some of the symptoms of medication that people have been prescribed for their mental health problems. Maybe it's just a chance to sort of have a break from your own thoughts for a few hours. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why people might be more drawn to use a substance if they've got difficulties with their mental health. But there's even a third possibility as well. And that's that There might be something that happens sort of earlier in life or maybe even something kind of genetic or hereditary that predicts both of these things. And so the association that we see is just because something or maybe a personality trait, maybe impulsivity might predict both your likelihood to use a substance and might put you at higher risk of poor mental health. So with my PhD and actually since then as well, what I've really been trying to do is unpick these things. And my main conclusion from my PhD was it's really difficult to do that. In terms of 
cannabis and psychosis, I think, is the one people are particularly interested in. It's one certainly that makes a lot of headlines. And what I found in my PhD using this cohort from Bristol was actually the evidence linking cannabis to psychotic-like symptoms a couple of years later was no stronger, in fact, maybe even a little bit less strong than the evidence linking cigarette use to later psychotic-like experiences. And that doesn't mean that tobacco causes psychosis, although some people more recently are wondering whether that might be the case. But it just means that it's an incredibly difficult thing to unpick because we can't do a randomised controlled trial to look at the impact of cannabis on psychosis for lots of reasons. We're left with looking at what people choose to do and teenagers who choose to use cannabis are going to be different from teenagers who choose not to in lots of ways other than just their cannabis use. So we have to try and take all of those things into account. That means knowing what they are and having good measures of them. And I don't think you can ever definitively say that you've covered both of those things. So you're always left with this sort of doubt of there might be something else going on here. That's very relatable to me on a kind of personal level in that the sort of same kind of unpicking that you're trying to do on a wider society level is the kind of unpicking that many of us find ourselves having to do on a kind of personal level of like, what's nature? What's nurture? And those questions are, you know, very pertinent to me. My mom has mental health issues. There's a, a likelihood that I've inherited mine. Both my parents smoked. My dad was a cannabis user when I was growing up and I was introduced to cannabis within my family. So it's very hard to say if that's nature or nurture. And I should say, really, at this point, for anybody who's written me off very quickly for saying that I'm a recreational drug user, it's an interesting one, really, because I would say I'm a recreational drug user. I'm also a medicinal drug user. I use drugs to medicate my mental health, although I do that with full knowledge that I'm stumbling in the dark like everybody. And when and if the drugs that I take to help me stop helping me, I will be stopping using those drugs same way that people do with antidepressants that they're prescribed and I certainly know lots of people who smoke cannabis who it's been very bad for their mental health I'm lucky touch wood that's not the case for me I'm one of the kind of people who smokes weed and it doesn't make me unproductive it focuses me and helps me to work and I understand that for people who are not like that cannabis can be a very destructive influence in their life but I would say to anyone listening you are probably also a recreational drug user and maybe a medicinal drug drug user because pretty much everybody is right yep i'm taking a recreational drug right now in that i'm holding a cup of tea and like that sounds a bit facetious but caffeine is a psychoactive substance alcohol is a psychoactive substance i want to do a line of you to wake me up when the day is through you fill my mind you crumble up i mix you with the orange juice in my And what is recreational and what is medicinal changes as well? Like both me and my dad would have started smoking weed as recreational. 
But I've come over the years to understand that I can use weed to help with my anxiety and my depression. And over the years, as my dad got older, he became somebody who had a lot of physical pain. And so smoking weed then became a medicinal thing for him. It helped him to get through some years. But then now, as he has got dementia and he's kind of getting into advanced dementia, he's kind of gone past the medicinal use of cannabis, although he hasn't really wanted cannabis for a few years. But when he did want cannabis, it was really about reclaiming, recapturing the recreational experiences and maybe to his detriment, like he was trying to chase an experience that he, I don't know if he was really getting from that in the last years. And now he's actually got to the point where he's forgotten his addictions. Because when we're talking about cannabis, I don't know, he might be addicted to cannabis. Having read your book and listened to your podcast, I like I probably would have spread the myth that you can't get addicted to cannabis maybe in the past and I won't be spreading that myth probably the most addictive thing that my dad was connected to was tobacco and in fact even after he stopped smoking weed you know tobacco was the thing that he needed now it's an interesting thing that he has got past the point of remembering that he was a you know he doesn't ask for cigarettes now you know that's that's an interesting thing to see in him because sure part of his addiction is chemical but part of it is very psychological as well like smoking cigarettes to him he's a writer he's very connected with his self-image his idea of himself he's the kind of person who gets very angry about the smoking ban or did about the smoking ban but now he can't even remember any of that which is sad weirdly it's sad to see him no longer want to hurt his body with tobacco that's the thing as well like having talked to some people who are experts in dementia now it seems to me that the things that have probably damaged my dad's health in terms of he's had heart issues and had a quadruple heart bypass and he's got dementia uh, the things that probably did the most damage and have potentially caused or uh speeded up those things is nicotine and alcohol not the cannabis although that probably also hasn't been too helpful yeah there are definitely some links between cannabis and memory although we don't understand as much about the harms of cannabis partly because certainly in the uk most people who use cannabis use it with tobacco and the risks of tobacco for physical health are so great that kind of gets tangled up then when you're trying to understand more about the harms of cannabis you have to kind of discount some of these things that which were almost certainly being caused by the tobacco that you're having with the cannabis rather than the cannabis itself. But I think what you're saying is true up and down the country and probably much wider than that. Lots of us are doing ourselves harm from the drugs that society has said we're allowed to use, the legal drugs like alcohol and tobacco. And yes, you don't have to go as far as getting a problem like alcohol dependence to be causing yourself harm from having more alcohol than you probably, I don't want to say should, because that sounds very much like I'm telling people what they should do, but having a bit too much alcohol is still doing you, it's sort of, it's not like there's a line where you can say under this amount is fine and over this amount, bad news. It's it's a continuum. And so the more you have, the more you are putting yourself at risk. The first time I ever smoked a cigarette, it was to bring back the effect in theory. I guess that's a myth. Uh, I definitely know that's a myth. But when I was, you know, 15, I didn't. It was to bring back the effect of the joint I'd smoked a while before. And of course, it brought back the effect of the nicotine that I'd smoked. And I, I misdiagnosed that as bringing back the weed. But, but also I first smoked weed mixed 
mixed with tobacco. And so I got addicted to tobacco and I, I wish I wasn't addicted to tobacco. I quite like being addicted to cannabis if I am, but I, I'm not too keen on being addicted to nicotine. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about those two drugs together is there is a reason for that combination though, right? Because cannabis is a, it's a, it's a drug in its own kind of, in its own category. It's one of the reasons I thought it was super cool when I was a younger person in that it doesn't quite fit like stimulant, depressant, psychedelic, but it does have factors of a depressant within it. Whereas nicotine is a stimulant. So when you take those things together, you are counteracting the sleepiness with a, a, a kick. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it's quite culturally specific as well in that some places around the world, smoking cannabis with tobacco just isn't a thing. And it's very rare. Whereas in other parts of the world, like in the UK, it's far more unusual not to. Although I think that is changing as people are moving away from smoking cannabis to consuming it in ways that might be seen to be less harmful in terms of physical health. And that includes removing the tobacco, but so things like heat not burn devices so you can vape your cannabis rather than have to burn it and smoke it. And, and, and in a way, you know, one of the obstacles, although I understand that you understandably remain kind of agnostic on these kind of issues, but one of the things that gets in the way of more people in this country smoking it without the nicotine is the fact that it is an illegal drug. It's easier to get away with smoking a joint than it is smoking weed in a pipe, I have discovered as I have tried to get rid of the nicotine from my my intake. You know, if you're in a park and as as my dad used to do when I was a toddler, he used to sort of have a joint under a tree and I used to crawl a, a, along in front of him. He wouldn't have been necessarily suspected of smoking a joint because he was smoking what looked like a cigarette. Whereas if I'm in a park and I smoke in a pipe, people who see me are going to think I'm smoking crack because they're not necessarily informed about how drug use works. And so they're, they're, they're more likely to kind of give me funny looks or even call the police, although I am white. So it makes it a little bit easier to get away with that. In the book and in the podcast, to a lesser extent, I don't tend to go into issues around drug legislation just because it's about the science. Having said that, I think if you listen or read the book, it's quite clear that I'm a big proponent of harm reduction, of doing what we can to make people who choose to use drugs as safe as they can be doing something that is sort of inherently risky. And there are a lot of additional harms or risks of harms that come about because of a drug being illicit. So that's definitely something I'm very happy to go on the record and say is that there are added risks from an illicit drugs purely because of its illicit status. So if you think about things like cocaine or MDMA or ketamine, things that can be a, a white powder or a tablet, if you're taking something like that and you have to buy it in a way that means there's no regulation, there's no kind of consumer rights for illicit drugs. So you you never know, you can never be truly sure how strong it is, what it is, what it's mixed with. And that increases your risk of harm. Like even with alcohol, where it's incredibly well regulated and we know exactly how strong a drink that we're having is, we still manage to mess up our dosing all the time and get too drunk, get hung over when we don't want to be, you know, like we're rubbish at dosing ourselves with a very, very well regulated drug. So it's not surprising that it's even more risky when there's absolutely sort of nothing you can do to kind of be sure about your dose the legal drugs are really interesting to me in that regard like i don't drink now but lots of people will think lesser of me because i smoke weed but they will peer pressure me constantly to drink alcohol and 
you know, I don't want to. And I know why I don't want to, because the effect that that drug has on me is not a good one. I don't like the effect. It doesn't make me a nice person to be around, I don't think. But it also doesn't make me feel good. And it doesn't make me feel good the next day. All very good reasons to not take a substance. And I've taken a few substances and I've always thought about, does that work for me? Is that working with my body chemistry? Does this fit within my life? And sometimes yes, sometimes no. But it's it's interesting to me that when I kind of go out with drinkers, that they're not drug users in their mind. They don't see themselves that way. So they're not thinking, what's the dose like? What's the set and the setting like? All of the kind of things that people like me who read maybe too many books about drugs when they're, you know, a young person kind of get into, you know. Nicotine is, is similar. Like now it's not thought of as as so socially acceptable. But when I was kind of growing up, it was cool. When my dad was growing up, it was pretty much the thing you were expected to do. And when he was in the army, of course, as you say a number of times in your book, cigarettes were part of your rations. All soldiers got cigarettes and bonded through smoking cigarettes with each other. So it kind of was a state-sponsored drug program in a way like the opposite way that we think about drug programs normally i guess at that point science didn't know we didn't know how harmful tobacco was at that point however we have known since about the 50s so it wasn't long after that where we first became aware but at that time when this research was being done that first found the link between smoking and lung cancer doctors were advertising cigarettes there were adverts like my doctor recommends smoking blah 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 or you want to be a better mum why don't you have a cigarette that will make you calmer that kind of thing I mean even the flint Stones, the cartoon, was kind of sponsored by Winston Cigarettes and animated into, I can't remember if it was at the beginning or the end, it was just them having a cigarette. It's kind of the advert was animated into the actual cartoon. And looking back on that now, it just seems absolutely wild that that's how it was treated. But it took a long time for the message to kind of come through that smoking really does have these, particularly smoking cigarettes, actually, it's worth saying that cigarettes have this particular risk of harm. It's interesting, these cultural attitudes to drugs as well. I started smoking weed, for better or worse, uh, at 11. I started smoking uh, cigarettes at 15. My dad was probably smoking cigarettes at 15. But weed wasn't a thing back in, you know, the 30s and 40s in the UK. It wasn't a thing he had access to. He, He will have come across weed and embraced it very strongly in the 60s and 70s. Whereas me... Growing up in the 80s and 90s, like weed was pretty like common. Everybody was kind of into it. Like by that stage, people were starting to be a bit more permissive about it in the UK. Now it's even more permissive. And and I always found that kind of interesting when my dad went to doctors later in life. I would always be like, tell them you smoke weed because they need to know that information so that they can advise you on it. And he wouldn't do it because it was so illegal when he's first came across it that it wouldn't have been safe to talk to doctors about and so because he was inhibited about giving that information to doctors he wasn't necessarily getting the best information until you know I went with him finally to a memory clinic appointment whereby I kind of instigated the conversation and the doctor was like yeah yeah you can talk about this to me it will be fine and I can give you some good advice on this and it's interesting how the cultural attitudes to these things they can help us or they can hinder us really in how we use them. It's certainly something that's been seen with Somali and Yemen communities in the UK who use a substance called cut which is a leaf that you chew that is a mild stimulant it's a cathinone and 
This is often consumed alongside sugary drinks in a kind of social environment and is linked to certain health problems, which potentially might be due to the fizzy drinks rather than the substance itself. It's, it's a little bit unclear. But people will go to the doctor and they'll be asked whether they use drugs and they'll say no because they don't think of it as a drug. It's like if you went to the doctor and they said, do you use drugs? If you drank four cups of coffee a day, you probably wouldn't go, yes, I use caffeine. You'd go, no, I don't. When actually the caffeine might be having an effect, you know. So that aspect of culture is really important as well when we're trying to understand drugs because we might not think of alcohol as a drug but other people might not think of cannabis as a drug. The fact that so many cultures have different drugs built into them as kind of part of the way that their culture works speaks to something you reference I think in your book and also it's something that I've heard a few times human beings and drug use historically goes right back for as long as we've been thinking of ourselves as humans probably or like being self-conscious we've been taking drugs in different forms and in fact Sometimes I've heard some people, when you sort of ask what is the definition of a human being, sometimes people will even mention using substances as part of that definition. Yeah, there certainly seems to be a lot of evidence that naturally occurring substances like psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, mescaline, so those two are both psychedelics, but also cannabis, tobacco, some forms of, of opioids like opium that's found in poppies. Humans have been using these substances for a really, really long time, like thousands thousands of years, basically, or potentially longer than that. There's a philosopher who made a list of human universals, so things that are seen across different cultures and across history. And they include things like language, communication and play, but also drug use is one of the things that he identifies as a human universal. So it does seem like something that humans like to do and have liked to do a lot for a long time. By a lot, I mean in lots of different circumstances, rather than they like to get high a lot, like <laughs> multiple times. Because historically, it was very different use to the way it is now sort of ritualistic settings, or potentially it wasn't everyone who did it, it would be a shaman who would take the substance and tell the rest of the community about what they'd seen rather than it being everyone. In some, it would be a sort of rite of passage thing. You'd take it, but not very regularly. The thing is, it's been varied in lots of different cultures and societies. There's not one way that happened across everywhere. And also the thing I should probably point out now is that I'm not a cultural historian or a scientific historian. And so this is stuff that I've read, but I'm always very keen to point out that this is not the bit that I'm expert in it's just i'm really interested in it i think also maybe it's also to do with like mass production has changed the way that we approach substance use in that i guess with cigarettes it was the creation of the literal cigarette that became something that you could send out to all of your soldiers and alcohol again there's been a industrialization of alcohol use that has gone much further than kind of having a still in your house with most drugs that we think of as illegal drugs now they're all very mass produced like ecstasy cocaine anything in a powder or a pill requires industrialized processes to create and means that you're distributing it to a wider amount of people than people will have done before those processes were available to them yeah although i think it's worth pointing out that lots of people don't use illicit drugs. So while we might think that, particularly if you read in the media, that certainly cannabis is everywhere and everyone uses it, actually most people don't use cannabis. But 
generally if if you do then your circle of friends will because drug use is quite a social thing so you tend to either gravitate towards people like you with similar interests to you or your interests change as a result of your friendship group so when you yourself use substances you feel like everyone does and when you don't you feel like no one does and the people who do are sort of other and I think that keeps this kind of artificial divide we see of this kind of moralising about drug uses because if you don't use them then you might not necessarily kind of come across them and then they might seem alien and scary and particularly the way that we're kind of taught about drugs from a young age as well although I think the conversation around particularly illicit drugs is changing. It's hard to tell whether that's just because I see a lot more of it now because I work in this field and I'm, I've got this podcast and this book so my voice in this field is growing but I feel like since I started my PhD 10 or 15 years ago, that the conversations are changing for the better. They're becoming more thoughtful and grown up. Your particular kind of area is recreational drugs rather than drugs in general. Is that right to say? I mean, it looks like it's not from the, from the reaction you're giving. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. It's, it's sort of, it's not going to the point of dependence or addiction. I tend to look at population level use of substances. But I don't think recreational drug use is a particularly helpful term because as you said right at the beginning I think we both said it actually is that people use drugs that we think of as recreational drugs for lots of different reasons the data that I tend to use is often from these cohort studies so it's people being asked have you used this substance but it's much harder to get detailed information about why so I'm looking at the use of recreational drugs. I couldn't definitively say that it's recreational use of those drugs because that's also something I really noticed when I was writing the book is that so many of these substances that we think of as recreational drugs also have lots of other uses, either, I don't really want to say official, but sanctioned medicinal use, like ketamine, for example, being on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's an incredibly useful substance for anaesthetizing people where there isn't ventilation equipment available and that kind of thing. So it's really useful at roadside traffic accidents, in war zones, places where you can't get people into a hospital with respiratory equipment quickly. It's also really useful in veterinary medicine for a similar reason. It's got a quite good safety profile because you can give some animal like a horse or a camel or something a larger dose and there's sort of a a bit of headroom before that animal might experience problems from it because it doesn't depress breathing in the same way that other anaesthetics do. But if it's being used recreationally, it's been linked to bladder problems. You're putting yourself at quite a risk if you're going out and about taking something that is an anaesthetic. You can be quite vulnerable if you're unable to look after yourself or defend yourself. And it's also been linked to mental health problems. But again, that's sort of difficult to quantify as what came first. So many of these substances have these kind of complex not just recreational uses, like research looking at MDMA or psilocybin as treatments for depression, or also as treatments for addiction, which I find absolutely fascinating, this idea of using a recreational drug as a treatment for using too much recreational drugs, you know. So these substances are much more complex than we might think on first glance. My relationship with cannabis is both kind of self-medication in terms of it calms me down, it changes if I'm feeling negative it changes the negative into like I become curious I become curious rather than negative which is an improvement it may not be as good as like feeling really happy but it's better but also you know one of the reasons that both me and my dad smoke weed is 
creative. He was a writer. I'm a writer and make things. And sometimes it can give you a perspective or like, you know, it's very good for, for mixing music. When I've made music, it's been really, really good. And, and, it, and it can make you think tangentially, you know, which isn't necessarily useful if you're trying to remember your shopping, but is really good if you're writing a lyrics to a song. When you reach the top, you paint my face. research the drugs themselves but not necessarily the recreational side of the use and in fact I think it would be nice if there was more research looking at not just the harms I think it's not surprising that in terms of what gets funded the public health element of drug use is that there are risks from taking pretty much every substance in the in my book and every substance I've done a podcast with because we all take risks every day crossing the road is risky and um, getting on a bus is risky breathing in the air in London is risky so it's, it's not surprising that public health money or interest tends to focus on the risks of these substances because no substance use is without the risk of harm understanding what risks you're putting yourself in when you take a substance is really really important but we all take risks every day and I think one thing that kind of gets overlooked in terms of recreational drugs is the potential benefits that they might have. And it would be really great if there was more research into that. And I think we're getting that in terms of looking at medicinal use of, for example, psilocybin or MDMA as part of a talking therapy, drugs like ketamine as a treatment for alcohol dependence. It's kind of accepted that lots of people use alcohol to deal with social anxiety, to make going out and meeting new people a bit easier. But people who don't use alcohol might be using other substances in that way and it would be really good to understand that. Or they might be using them for a different reason. One of the reasons that MDMA is thought of as being potentially useful for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder is because it can allow a person into a different state of mind that means they're more able to access the traumatic memories because one of the huge difficulties of treating PTSD is thinking about the trauma elicits the panic response unsurprisingly so how does a therapy move past that if you can't address the thing that's causing the panic because it causes the panic so MDMA makes you feel connected to other people makes you feel kind of open but also safe and it's so it can be a great way to start a conversation. And this isn't saying that if you've got PTSD, you should just go and get some pills because the really crucial thing is that it's part of the talking therapy. So you're working with a trained professional to help you through this point rather than just taking something that you buy in a club. But it's still the same. It's the same substance. And if you change the set and the setting, then it sort of transforms in what it can do. That's really interesting to me because that speaks to my kind of anecdotal experience. I took MDMA when I was a younger person. I haven't taken it in a while. And it was really good for me for a number of reasons. One was to do with 
kind of a post-traumatic stress experience. It, it was when I was on ecstasy that I realized I had been raped like a year before. And I had not seen it in that way. I wouldn't have used that that word uh, for it until that moment. And I realized it very happily. Uh, you know, I was full of love when I re- realized that that had happened. It was very useful to me then afterwards, you know, to have that knowledge and kind of help me to find ways to sort of mitigate post-traumatic stress disorder. Although, you know, I think I have still got what they call complex PTSD for many reasons to do with that incident and of many others. But also one of the things that I found really interesting as a person who had seen themselves as a man until they took ecstasy and, and still did for, for numerous years, I probably still do see myself as a man, but it's, there's more of a question mark there now. It was a way of like connecting me with a lot of emotions that masculinity stops you from expressing. And when I became interested in ecstasy was a while after, you know, the, the the second summer of love, it wasn't when ecstasy was like the big thing in the country. But when I've read about that time, what happened to a lot of men was they discovered that they could hug each other and tell each other that they loved each other. You know, and there's anecdotal accounts of kind of football hooligans becoming lovely, lovely people who would go around looking after people in clubs. And, and, and it's interesting to me that MDMA can have potentially social effects. And I guess another thing that connects with this topic is I think you mentioned Alexander Shulgin certainly you mentioned him in your podcast I haven't read the MDMA chapter in the book yet but Alexander Shulgin was the person who kind of resynthesized it it already existed but he kind of brought ecstasy or MDMA into kind of America and American life and he wrote a couple of books with his wife Anne Shulgin she talks about it in the second book of using it with rape survivors and and to help with PTSD in those uh, cases and ever since I read that you know and that was a long time ago I've been like why is this not available on the NHS but currently it is not yeah I think it's a good thing that the NHS only prescribes evidence-based medicine. So the question I would ask is, why aren't we doing better studies and investigating it more thoroughly? And that is going on, particularly in the US. I think there's a lot of research looking at MDMA in use with army veterans over in the US. And I think that's going to hopefully lead some really, really interesting results. Then persuading the NHS, who are already struggling to fund regular talking therapy to fund MDMA-assisted talking therapy will be another question, but one that I hope people will be asking and asking loudly. To actually implement these things in in reality is is difficult and involves lots and lots of of thinking and balancing harms and benefits. Weed is something that's very connected, in, certainly in the media, with the idea of people developing worse mental health as a result of smoking it. And I find myself in a weird position of, of seeing it very much the opposite. For me, as I said earlier, I know people it hasn't been good for. But I mean, is it reasonable to be self-medicating with weed for uh, depression and anxiety and uh, dealing with childhood traumas? Ooh. Well, I'm not a clinician. I cannot give any individual advice. I can tell you what the population level data looks like. And what we see when we look at that is that we do see depression and anxiety at higher rates in people who use cannabis and particularly use cannabis very regularly compared to the general population or people who use cannabis less regularly. But as I said at the beginning, that could mean that cannabis might increase your risk, but it could also mean that people who are dealing with depression and anxiety might be turning to cannabis. And it's really difficult to 
untangle that. I think it could well be that it's different for different people. I think there are some people for whom cannabis won't be helpful. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be something to do with the biology of the substance, but it could also be to do with if you start smoking a lot of or using a lot of cannabis very regularly, it might impact on your social life, for example. In particular, if you start using it at home, it might make you feel less motivated to go out and see people and that might impact negatively on your mental health. I mean, it might impact positively on your mental health. I'm, I'm judging from your face, I could tell what, what you think about that. But it, for some people, it might stop them from reaching out when they might need to. So in terms of that, there are risks from using it in that way. And particularly, again because saying cannabis implies that cannabis is one thing but something we're sort of getting to understand more and more is that there are hundreds of different cannabinoids in cannabis and we know lots about well, I say lots comparatively lots about THC tetrahydrocannabinol which is the one that causes the intoxication effect from cannabis and we're learning a little bit more about cannabidiol CBD which I'm sure everyone has heard of because now it's in hummus and ice cream uh, <laughs> so cannabis can have loads of THC and hardly any CBD or it can have much more balanced levels or it I mean the ratio have all sorts of different ratios of these things and there's some evidence growing evidence that the ratio of THC to CBD might be important in terms of things like causing a psychotic like intoxication experience. Now, that's not the same as saying increasing your risk of developing something like schizophrenia or psychosis. But given that one can experience psychotic-like symptoms during cannabis intoxication, that does seem to be influenced by the relative levels of THC and CBD in the cannabis that's consumed. And you can actually do randomised control trials of that because you can give people a gas to breathe in that's got THC and CBD at different levels and then they don't know what they've been given, you don't know what they've been given and you sort of measure their response to this kind of cannabis gas. And that has shown that THC does induce psychotic-like experiences transiently while you're high and that CBD goes a little bit of a way to bringing those intoxication psychotic-like experiences, sort of tampering them down a bit. So that's really, really interesting. In terms of depression and anxiety, we're not as far through understanding whether there's a, something important about a particular cannabinoid in terms of either increasing or decreasing the risk, like it seems to be for psychosis. Maybe it's because research has focused on psychosis first, because conditions like schizophrenia can be so debilitating. And obviously depression and anxiety can be as well. But those are particularly extreme mental health problems. The hippie-ish maxim around CBD and THC that I read about a while back was the idea of like one being the antidote to the other, like CBD being the antidote to THC. Weed purists will be like, you shouldn't mess with the amounts of them because it's beautifully made by nature. But you know, there's a grain of truth within that, it turns out, within those kind of rants that I've occasionally heard and maybe occasionally given, but not for a, not for a long time. What about using cannabis for pain or like old age related infirmities? Yeah, again, this is the population level. I think in terms of things like joint pain, there is some evidence. So the problem is most of the good quality evidence we've got at the moment tends to come from animal studies because it's just easier to do this research. But we are getting more, certainly more studies ongoing in humans. So it's a kind of, this looks tantalising and potentially interesting. Animal studies are pretty consistent in showing that cannabis cream does seem to be good for joint pain. And 
potentially cannabis consumed orally as well. So that could mean smoked or it could mean cannabis oil. But again, yeah, the animal studies show this sort of anti-inflammatory effect of cannabis, but human studies are still pretty thin on the ground, which is a shame, although they are going on. That's one of the interesting things that your podcast and uh, your book bring out really is that the drugs we know the most about are the ones that we haven't made illegal because we can do studies on the ones that aren't illegal for numerous reasons, partly because they're legal. So people will admit to using them and things like that, but also because we just have a lot more data, a lot more people use them. And so there's a lot more data out there. How does cannabis intersect with heart conditions and uh, dementia? So that's a really good question. And I'm not sure we know that much. After you've just smoked cannabis, you are at a slightly increased risk of heart attack for intoxication length of experience. Kind of in the same way that if you do vigorous exercise or have sex or something like that, then you've, you've put yourself at increased risk because you're your blood pressure and your heart have been increased by the intoxication experience or the exercise or whatever it is that you've done. In terms of longer term, this is another point where it's really difficult to tease out what's to do with the cannabis and what's to do with tobacco, because we know that tobacco, long term use of tobacco increases your risk of all sorts of heart problems. Dementia is a really difficult one. And as far as I know, there isn't any good quality research about cannabis and dementia. And in terms of tobacco, it's really hard because because tobacco is so damaging to your physical health. Quite a few people who use tobacco will have died before they get to the point where they would or wouldn't have got dementia. So for a while, it looked like there might be a protective effect of nicotine for Parkinson's disease. But there's this kind of problem with survivor bias that the people who live long enough to get Parkinson's who are heavy smokers, there's something unusual about them that's meant they've got past the cancers and the emphysema and the heart disease from smoking. It's really, really hard to tease out. And I think actually what's happening at the moment is research is going on looking at these people who are sort of tobacco survivors almost, who managed to live a long life despite smoking heavily, because there might be something really interesting about them, about their genetics or about their other lifestyle behaviours or, you know, any number of factors that might give us some clues about, well, maybe this can help us with developing treatments for these things, but also to understanding later life problems like dementia. It's interesting to think about tobacco survivors as well, because in some criteria, you could call my dad a kind of uh, tobacco survivor because he's 95 and he's not dead, but he's had a, you know, heart attack and a quadruple heart bypass. So in a different generation, he wouldn't be a survivor. He would have died. And now he's got dementia, which may or may not be related to smoking as well. And also it was interesting to me when you were saying about the increased heart rate that happens after you ingest pretty much any drug or most drugs in the, like when my dad had his first heart attack, he was absolutely the classic case. He was sitting up late at night, drinking whiskey and smoking cigarette after cigarette going, oh, is there something going on with my heart? Maybe I better have another cigarette. And so it's it's interesting to think like that obviously the nicotine and the alcohol over his whole life had brought him to the point where he was going to get a heart attack, but they also might have been the trigger in what caused it in that moment. Yeah. And I think just to go back to cannabis as well, there are quite a lot of studies linking heavy cannabis use with memory problems. So it's not impossible to see how that could then also be linked to an increased risk of dementia as well. Although as far as I know, yeah, there isn't any good quality research looking into that. The other thing is, you know, that I want to ask you in terms of, obviously, as you say, you're you're an epidemiologist, which means you look at population. So, you're, you know, you're, I'm asking you this with, with that 
that taken into account. But in terms of like ecstasy use or MDMA use, that's a bad idea, right? If you've already had a heart attack. Well, it's a stimulant. It has stimulant-like effects anyway. So it's going to put more pressure on your heart and circulatory system for sure. You know, in a way, I just, I want you to say it's absolutely a terrible idea because then I'll be like, yes, I was right not to give my dad ecstasy when I could have taken ecstasy with my dad, which would have been, you know, emotionally a very moving experience. Although he was smoking weed while, while, I was on ecstasy so I don't know is the smoking weed just as dangerous for his heart and maybe he should have just been given the MDMA I don't know what what do you think on that I mean it's difficult to quantify and again like want to be clear that this isn't specific advice for a specific person but given that MDMA is a stimulant it does have more of a kind of stimulant like effect on your heart and circulatory system than something like cannabis If you go to podcastviews.com, then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes, and if you do it, you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey, down to a sunless sea, counts as getting better acquainted because getting better acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by you can find down to a sunless sea memories of my dad on facebook it's on twitter at sunless pod you can email the show at down to a sunless pod at gmail.com the episodes and the show notes are all collected together at down to a sunless pod.com And thanks to Dr. Susie Gage from Say Why to Drugs for being such a brilliant guest. She's at Susaphone on Twitter and her website is susiegage.co.uk. And everybody should absolutely go and listen to Susie's podcast and buy her book. I have done both those things and can thoroughly recommend them. I should have predicted in advance that you would sort of suddenly become defensive in the middle of this conversation because I I do know you can do that no 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 but I, and I understand where it comes from and I should have realized that when we talked the other night about it you were you know in a different state of mind maybe to how you how you are now yes or, or a similar one but you're having a different effect because we've had a bit to drink obviously over this you know, we're having this conversation and we'd had a bit to drink then